Hello, this is John Mangini, Vice President of Marketing with the New Jersey Bankers Association. Welcome to the New Jersey Banker Podcast. Today, our President and CEO, Mike Afuso, sits down with Tony Rapanich, President and CEO of Shield Compliance, to discuss the pros and cons of serving the cannabis industry while there's still conflict between federal and state law, risks and consequences for financial institutions that choose to work with cannabis-related businesses, the Safer Banking Act, and more. This episode is brought to you by Shield Compliance. Shield Compliance transforms how financial institutions manage risk, comply with regulations, and satisfy operational demands associated with serving the legal cannabis industry. With Shield, bankers can grow their portfolios, gain an early mover advantage on new relationships, and benefit from the low-cost deposits and non-interest income that come from cannabis-related businesses. For more information, please visit shieldbanking.com. Thanks, John. And I want to thank my guest, Tony Raponich, President and CEO of Shield Compliance. Tony, the U.S. cannabis market is poised for substantial growth with projections from New Frontier data estimating it to reach $72 billion annually by 2030. This growth is primarily driven by legalization of adult use cannabis in 23 states, including New Jersey where total sales are expected to reach $2.3 billion by 2026. And that would make New Jersey a top 10 contributor to global legal cannabis sales growth. So with that in mind, just last month, the New Jersey Cannabis Regulatory Commission rolled out three adult-use cannabis license categories, a wholesaler, the delivery, and distribution. Each of these represent a significant advance in, state, in the state cannabis market and the New Jersey platform for marketing cannabis. What's your message to New Jersey bankers that are already serving or that are interested in serving this expanding market? Well, thanks, Mike. First, uh, great to be with you again. And um, it's a perfect place to start the conversation. You know, the, the growth of the market there in New Jersey is providing a significant opportunity for bankers. And you know, right now, what we see is really sort of a first mover advantage, right? There are there's real work to be done to bank the cannabis industry, and so as you sort of build that muscle, um, it's a lot easier to do that when there's less people to uh, compete against. And so we're seeing that in the New Jersey market right now, just a handful of financial institutions providing services to the industry, and these additional licenses and the continued uh, expansion of the New Jersey program uh, means there's more and more businesses that are seeking uh, access to banking. Um, you know, competition will introduce new choices for financial for for the cannabis industry. Um, you know, one of the things that we see is competition does help control uh, fees. It puts a governor on those. I know bankers would like to think there's an unlimited fee opportunity here, but Competition is keeping fees in line for the licensed operators. And for some bankers, it's it's even driving them to think about what is the credit worthiness of these licensed operators? And does that provide an opportunity to um, add additional uh, high quality uh, earning assets to the, um, to the balance sheet? I think the other thing for bankers to keep in mind is Almost every bank that we work with today 
their cannabis banking program is really disconnected from their retail uh, footprint. You know, they're really taking uh, a regional approach. And when you look at the Northeast in particular, what's going on in New York, what's likely to happen in Pennsylvania, all the way up to Maine, there's lots of opportunity in the Northeast. So as you're finding these cannabis customers, that first mover advantage may not only help you in New Jersey, but it may help you to grow a larger program overall. So, so you think there's a chance for growth and there's not necessarily as much uh, upside on fees. Um, what, what potential risks and consequences for financial institutions do you see if they choose to get involved with cannabis-related businesses um, in New Jersey? And how could you mitigate those risks? Yeah, I mean, the good news is, if you think about it, Mike, you know that FinCEN guidance was issued almost a decade ago now. We're going to be coming up on its 10-year anniversary next year. And so there are many financial institutions that have gone um, before the bankers in New Jersey and and figuring this out. And creating that playbook for the industry to help mitigate those risks has really uh, informed all the parties. So you know, the regulators are better informed about how to provide oversight of these banks. Just speaking with um, somebody from the Conference of State Bank Supervisors, you know, they've created a whole playbook for their uh, examiners at the state level to be able to uh, go in and, and examine these financial institutions. We see the OCC, um, FDIC also have similar training and programs in place to help their examiners. So when we look at those risks that you need to mitigate, you really are making sure that you are banking folks that are on the legal side of the line. You know, in your intro, you noted that the cannabis industry is expected to grow to about $72 billion by the end of the decade. The illicit market, even at that time, is still expected to be in the $50 billion range a pretty significant illicit market compared to the size of the legal market. So bankers, we've got an obligation to make sure that we're banking folks on the right side of the line. So, hey, we've got to make sure we've got controls in place. We've got the right data in place to monitor these accounts and then meet all of those filing requirements that come under the FinCEN guidance. It's uh, it's really interesting um, when you talk about the size of the markets and how um, you know, even though we're, we have um, legal adult use, there will still be this huge illicit market and, you know, how the state's going to have to deal with that. And, you know, we, we New Jersey always has a very uh, robust tax structure. And, um, you know, I think it's I think it's interesting as a matter of public policy, um, if you're trying to shift uh, folks that use cannabis away from the illegal market toward the legal market, um, the the taxation piece um, can be a, a very uh, interesting place where, where people are going to make their choices, particularly when you look at like what goes on in places like Oregon and California, how they, they really have not been able to stamp out that um, that illegal market. So, yeah, and I, uh, and I would I would add to that, Mike, because um, one, New Jersey has made the decision to actually, maybe surprisingly so, be at the lower end of that taxation. Take uh, like Cook County in Illinois, where Chicago is located. I think you're at like a 35% effective excise and sales tax. I think you guys are somewhere in the 14% range. So 
You're right. Tax policy, while it's popular when you're trying to get these initiatives passed to say, look at all the money we're going to make at the state level, greed can also drive and help fuel the illicit market. The other thing that we see, and we're hopeful in New Jersey, um, that we have, you, you mentioned California and, and Oregon, um, they've had very challenging um, circumstances there. One in um, in Oregon, just this unlimited amount of licenses that they were putting out just created a huge amount of supply. All these people thought they were getting lottery tickets because they got a cannabis license. Uh, in fact, now I was just talking to one of our bankers in Oregon. You can give away your license for a dollar. Uh, <laughs> that's not much of a lottery ticket. In California, you had really sloppy enforcement for years and years. And so hopefully, not always that these states learn from each other, but hopefully there's an understanding, and we see it in places like Michigan and Illinois, where you've got uh, really consistent enforcement and oversight of license holders, and there's good signs that that's happening in New Jersey. And so that helps drown out some of that illicit activity, too. If you don't start with chaos, it really does help. Yeah, I think I think it's going to be interesting. You know, um, as, as many of you know, um, and as you may know, um, I worked uh, for 15 years as the lobbyist for New Jersey bankers. And um, when the state is in financial dire straits, <laughs> and which I think we will be now that all this federal money is disappearing, it becomes, oh, well, we'll just raise it five cents. It's just five, five cents. cents. Just five cents. Oh, nothing happened for five cents. So then why not raise it 25 cents? <laughs> and, you know, we we have this ability to go down that slippery slope. And, and, and I think... With cannabis, it will be it'll be very interesting to see um, the the real economic effect of increasing taxes and where that um, you know where, where that break point is right because it's always talked about in politics it's always talked about in economics of of buying guns and butter and where, where does that line cross <laughs> I have a funny feeling we're going to find that out in New Jersey in the next couple of years. But, well, uh, and you may not have to look too far. You may just have to look across the river to New York and you might get that answer even sooner. Indeed, indeed. But let's get back to, to some of the uh, issues that are, are facing our members. So so banks need to really have a strong compliance system in place to safely bank the cannabis industry. What are some of the challenges that cannabis-related businesses face when it comes to accessing banking services in New Jersey? There's a, there's a few things that you have to take into consideration. One is, um, you know, the the bank has a pretty firm set of obligations under that FinCEN guidance to really interrogate the business and the underlying beneficial owners and to, to understand all aspects of the business. And so some cannabis operators, um, maybe it's just the nature of that industry, are uh, a little uh, hesitant uh, or to share all of that information. So, and if they're new to business in general, um, this, you know, if you look at some like social equity applicants, things like that, uh, this could be a big change for them. And so first the applicants have to be ready to lay it all on the table for the bank because the bank has to make an informed decision. Secondarily, those operators need to uh, have an understanding that the bank has regular reporting requirements in order to understand the business, make sure everything stays on the right side of the line that we talked about. And so as uh, for operators, that's a challenge. What we hear from operators in general, however, we just completed a survey of licensed operators. 
They're generally very happy with the service they're receiving from their bank. They are uh, appreciative of the services. They would they would like more access to credit. I think they are finding uh, access to credit to be one of the most challenging aspects of the business, especially um, when their only other alternative is hard money lenders or giving up equity in their business. And so across the board, whether it was for real estate or operating lines of credit, we heard back from licensed operators that they want to find uh, easier paths to bank credit. And so uh, that's the that's the challenge right now. The other thing that you'll see is, you know, in, as these markets evolve, the wholesale side of the business kind of reverts to normal banking in so much um, the way that payments are made, right? Hey, ACH is happening all the time. There's a lot of wire transfers. People are writing checks to pay for inventory. There's normalization in that. Still some friction around international wires. If you need to buy things like uh, supplies for a wholesale operation, but even that's getting ironed out. In the retail side of the business, you're still 75% cash. And that 25% of electronic payments is still pretty messy. Uh, a lot of it's in the gray. And so both the banker has to figure out if that's acceptable and the merchant has to make sure that they're willing to take the risk of you know, shutdown of those services or uh, consumer confusion, all of those things. You know, in fact, we're, I mean, we're so passionate about this. We've actually spearheaded an open letter to the card brands to say, if national banks have figured out how to follow the FinCEN guidance and uh, provide services to these businesses, as well as state chartered uh, banks with FRB oversight and FDIC oversight, we don't see any reason why these card brands, since they push most of that risk down to their sponsor banks anyways, couldn't be in a position to say, you know what, we're going to support legal operators and we're going to focus our attention on illegal, op truly illegal operations, not state legal um, cannabis operations. We think that would be a huge uh, shift for the industry and help continue to sort of drain cash out of retail. That's, I mean, we're talking to a bunch of bankers, right? Cash is um, time consuming. It's risky. Um, all of those things apply to the cannabis operators, but 75% of their retail sales are in cash. Yeah, it certainly is a, uh, it's a, it's a difficult, it's a difficult issue. Um, you know, particularly, you know, I, you raise the issue of credit, you know, think about, think about the issues surrounding C&I lending. Um, everything's great until it's not great. <laughs> and then when it's not great and you realize that you have, um, your, your collateral is cannabis then you're really in a world of pain as a bank. So, um, you know, it, it, it's such, it's such a challenge and, um, you know, hopefully we can, uh, we could, we could try to move ahead in, in some reasonable manner, shape or form with some federal relief. So in the, in the houses of Congress, there's been numerous conversations and fits and starts, um, for legislation, the safe banking act, the safer banking act, that would uh, protect banks and other financial institutions that are uh, providing uh, banking services to uh, cannabis businesses in the states where it's legal. Can you talk to us a little bit about what's going on at the federal level and how that could affect um, New Jersey? Well, everything is super organized at the federal level yeah. and operating smoothly. 
Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think for safer banking, which basically is a safe banking act with a little extra added to it to get it through the Senate uh, Banking Committee, the fact that it went through markup with the Senate Banking Committee, um, you know, super positive move. Uh, as you know, safe banking has passed the House, I think, seven times. In, in all reality, though, we're going to be under new House leadership. We are looking at uh, troublesome uh, things happening overseas and um, and another government shutdown just around the corner. So I'm not particularly uh, optimistic about safe banking actually making it all the way to the finish line once again, but this time not because of the not because of the Senate, but because of the House. So safe banking, as you as, as you well know, Mike, it would help um, provide clarity for bankers, but it probably doesn't change the operating rules for bankers, meaning that all of the due diligence is required. We talked about the size of that illicit market is still going to be required. Most bank regulators I talk to say the best thing for SAFE is it will codify what's happening today and allow the federal agencies to create real exam procedures, which creates greater certainty for banks. It will increase some competition. So right now we say just take advantage of the first mover. What you're building is not going to be undone, uh, most likely by SAFE. Descheduling, on the other hand, is super interesting. Um, you know, with the Controlled Substances Act, um, cannabis is currently Schedule One. Uh, it's right up there with heroin, no medical benefit. Um, but the Controlled Substances Act in general also has a lot of negative things to say about cannabis unrelated to schedule. So it's not completely clear what uh, rescheduling. I don't think we'll get descheduling. I don't think it's coming out of the Controlled Substances Act, but rescheduling will likely. Um, create some advantages. One is we will get more research. Uh, two, we'll also get more, uh, we'll probably get some tax relief for the licensed operators on 280E of the tax code. But what it doesn't address is what's happening at the states today. There's hundreds of drugs on Schedule 3. Um, none of those can I manufacture in my own little facility licensed by the state uh, and, and sell because the state sells it's okay for me to sell on a recreational basis. Right. Um, so you're still going to have this conflict between federal sort of federal law and what's happening in the states. There's no there's no other schedule three drug that is um, sanctioned for uh, recreational use. So also the manufacturing of and distribution of drugs under schedule three are controlled by the FDA and the DEA. Um, and that's obviously not how cannabis is set up today. So. There's going to be some, it may be more symbolic. It will create some opportunities, maybe on the tax side and uh, create some research, but it's not going to solve the problem of the businesses that we've set up at the state level. There's still going to be a lot more work to do. That might happen by the end of the year if DEA, DEA has it in its hands now. Um, safe banking, my bet is that we don't, we don't get to the finish line. Yeah, unfortunately, I, th I think you're right. So so tell me about what you're doing and working with banks in New Jersey and how their programs are doing. And would you advise them to wait until this federal state conflict is resolved? Or is there something that you could do with them that can can 
creates some some type of comfort. The we have financial institutions that have now been serving the cannabis industry for uh, almost a decade, right? They've been on. They started back in 2014 when it passed in um, in Washington State and in Colorado, and have building their programs and gone through multiple exams and have been successful in that process. I think what we've learned from that process is there's not a need to wait for safer banking. What you do have to be willing to do is put in the appropriate policy and controls. And where we try to help our bankers is also to gain scale and efficiency in that process. So a lot of the oversight that you can do is about managing data and about looking for anomalies and then making sure that you're getting all of those uh, SAR uh, filings in on time and in an accurate fashion. And so there's a real there's a real competitive advantage to getting started now and earning these relationships. Mike, as you know, I'm a former banker. Uh, you know, you want to get clients operationally entangled with you. It's hard for commercial customers to switch banks, especially when they're in high-risk businesses. If you can earn their business now and wrap your services around them, they're really going to have to think hard about is it worth it for them to move somewhere else when more competition comes to the market? So our bankers that are in the market now are trying to sort of foreclose on that first mover advantage and gain as many relationships as possible. At the same time, they're working with their regulators and explaining how their programs are managed. They're using technology from Shield to help get that uh, efficiency and, and controls into the processes there. And, and then... Um, and then they're enjoying the advantages of low-cost deposits and additional fee income, um, something that you know most community bankers need today. Indeed, indeed. So as we close, what else? What else should our listeners know about this line of business? Yeah, it's a great question. One is, I think there's two business models emerging in cannabis banking, and and I say that because I think that leaves room for lots of different kinds of players. So there is a portfolio approach where bankers say, you know what, we have relationships in our communities, people that own property or invest in businesses and, and they're, they're sort of in our footprint or near our footprint. And we're gonna have 25 to 50 relationships and it's gonna be part of somebody's book of business. And the folks in the BSA and other risk areas of the bank, this will be a subset of their overall responsibilities providing oversight for this program. And the economics of that can be very good. You can manage your costs around that. There are another group of bankers that have taken a line of business approach. And those bankers have two, three, 400 clients over time. They are building uh, separate business development groups, account servicing, and the BSA function becomes so meaningful that they have dedicated staff in that area. And you know, the economics of that is there's a lot more upfront investment if you're building that line of business approach. Um, the portfolio approach, you can get started at a pretty reasonable price point. You know, some of our customers are breaking even at just a handful of relationships. If you look at the upfront cost to get started, the technology investment, um, and then the ongoing cost of managing those customers. So you can start small, you can grow into something larger, but just because you see somebody larger in the market, doesn't mean there's not also an opportunity for a portfolio player. 
Well, once again, I'd like to thank my guest, Tony Raponich, President and CEO of Shield Compliance. And for the New Jersey Banker Podcast, I'm Micah Fuso. Thanks, Mike.